Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Uh, the Torah, for what it's worth, um, emphatically warns about the, dan- the spiritual dangers of prosperity. Um, uh, so this is in Deuteronomy. It says, when you've eaten your fill and have built fine houses to live in and your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold have increased and everything you own has prospered, beware lest your heart grow haughty and you forget the eternal, your God, who freed you from the land of Egypt. Wealth makes us apt to forget God. God's defining characteristics, uh, we're reminded in Deuteronomy, is liberating the enslaved. And a few verses later, the Deuteronomist adds to that definition noting that God above all fights for the orphan and the widow, befriending and providing uh, the stranger with food and clothing. Forgetting God is biblical shorthand for forgetting our obligations to champion the disadvantaged. Up to a point, but there are also sections when judging that remind us not to be biased in favor of... We're going to get there. (laughs) We're going to get there. Uh, But I think at this stage of the priestly blessing, um, it's a challenge Uh, to see God luring us not only to protect our prosperity, but also to protect ourselves from it. Okay? Next line is, Ya'er Adonai Panave Lecha. May God shine God's face upon you. Um, I think that that's about pleasing God. So, um, the centrality of protecting ourselves from the nefarious aspects of prosperity builds to that next piece of the priestly blessing, um, which is uh, an, an idiom. Um, it shouldn't be understood little, literally. It's not about God, like, shining God's face. Um, so according to uh, our uh, former rabbi here, Jacob Milgram, uh, the expression is best understood in light of the opposite of it. Okay, so biblically there is Ya'er um, Adonai Panav, right? And there is... Um, hastir astir et uh, panai, right? That God will hide God's face, right? That's the opposite of ya'er. So ya'er is to show God's face to you, uh, and the opposite is to hide God's face. Um, That's in the, um, in Yadid Nefesh, isn't it? God will, don't hide your face from me. Right, I gotta think of, uh, um... Yeah, look at looking for what that. Right, right. Uh, in the English, it's definitely there. I'm trying to remember if it's if, it, if it's like that in the Hebrew. Um, but the um, it's, a, it's a sort of uh, um, well-known uh, biblical concept um, of um, uh, of uh, Hester Panim of, of God hiding God's face, um, which will, I mean that's sort of like. An indication of God's anger, right? God, when God's angry, God like turns away, right? I mean, I think about like with with my with my kids, like when you know they know I'm angry when I just sort of like walk out of the room, right, or something like that, right? I turn away. Um, 
So, uh, so the opposite then, right, of, of turning God's face is to shine God's face, and it so therefore should mean God's pleased with you. That's likely what Rashi meant when Rashi interpreted the phrase as God will show you a smiling face, a, a glowing or a happy face. So it, it's worth then understanding the biblical context in which God hides God's face. Okay, and God hides God's face, God's angry or displeased, most commonly when people violate the covenant. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more complicated. So, just in the uh, passage that I referenced before, um, we're most likely to turn from God, as a co- according to Deuteronomy, as a consequence of prosperity. Also, recall that we define turning from God as shirking our obligation to tend to the needs of the poor. That's the the, the sense of what we do when we um, uh, are not protecting ourselves from our prosperity. And so the equation, then, the priestly blessing is proposing is that God being pleased with us depends on our loyalty to heeding God's call in our lives. And we heed God's call, at least in large part, by helping the most disadvantaged in our society. In other words, striving for social justice secures the blessing of God being pleased with us. But pleasing God is more than just like the psychological urge to uh, gratify an authority figure, right? It's not just about getting like gold stars and A pluses, right? Um, it's more than our obligation to love God, right? There's, there's actually a quid pro quo implied here. Uh, according to the Deuteronomy text uh, uh, above that talks about God hiding God's face, God's being pleased with us is directly connected to God's presence being in our world and God's physical protection of us. And so the hiding of God's face due to God's anger will make us ready prey, according to Deuteronomy, for many evils and troubles. That passage is frequently understood to mean uh, that suffering is divine punishment for the sin of our portrayal of God. Um, That God withholds our protection when God feels we're not deserving of it. I think that there's all sorts of theological problems with that, and that's not what I would say that that's really trying to hit at. Withholding protection is very different from from choosing to cause something as well. Because I think think we, we can have a spectrum from from suffering not being at all related to God and saying that God's favor preserves you from the suffering that would otherwise happen and God smiting you, a la Korah, where he said... <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, all weird. of them may be problematic, yeah. but... <laughs> well, right, but, I mean, right. But, so, um, you know, I, I hear that. I mean, on a certain level, there's, there's not a... a, a, a significant difference between God actually smiting you and God letting other people smite you and God could otherwise stop well, other people from smiting you. I mean, but if, if, I mean, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, but let's say, well, well, and also perhaps, um, for lack of a better phrase, if, if suffering is caused generally by humans, that's a debatable proposition, but let's say it for the moment, there's a difference between God Increasing the suffering in the world by co- by injecting additional suffering intentionally, and God not redirecting a suffering. Let's say, and this is a bizarre thing. Let's say I'm walking down the street. I'm like, I'm gonna punch someone. I just really want to punch someone. I don't care who. I'm gonna punch someone. 
if God's protecting That's Blink, so far from then I'll punch. Then I punch Thad. If God isn't protecting Bree, then I meet Bree first and I punch her. That's different from God causing me to punch Bree, where I wouldn't otherwise punch anyone. Right, but what kind of what kind of God that could prevent you from punching Bree would also be fine with you punching Thad? One that is displeased with that. He's hidden his face from Thad. Because Thad's not been doing what he was supposed to do. Okay. <laughs> um, There's always somebody in the world who's not doing what they're supposed to do. So we can just direct the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> There's always many more than one somebody. There's always well, and then, then you're assuming a god that can actively intervene in these sorts of things, which, right. you know, when right. we're sort of circling which, back to, right. is right. God actively going to stop your hand from flying, or is God going to look at that and go, well, that really sucked, Ben. Don't do that. <laughs> so here's, here's how I here's I how I suggestions for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as, as long as as long as we're punching people, I got some ideas. Um, no, so here here's how I understand this. Okay, so I, I think that um, if we as individuals and as a collective fulfill our covenantal responsibilities, if we're if we care wholeheartedly for the least advantaged and elevate the dignity of all human beings, uh, if we fashion communities of justice and righteousness and strive toward peace, if we advance an agenda of oneness, of the fundamental unity of all that is, then God, who is the personification, source, and ultimate expression of that oneness, will be present in our world. And in such a world, we'll have no need for supernatural protection from an external power. We'll already built a world where there is only godliness and only goodness. And a world in which there is no evil or trouble. What? In a world in which there is safety. Right. You don't need divine right. intervention to be safe. Right. right. Well, except from, um, like, meteors or something. Yeah, like, I, I don't know about you, like, I understand where you're coming from, Rabbi, but I kind of want that supernatural protection from meteors, from, from the meteors. heat death of the universe. I mean, there's all kinds of big problems that are coming our way in a couple billion years. I think years. the whole point of godly protection oh, I don't think you. I don't think you from... really have to worry about that. Sorry for sure you do. I think the the whole thing about divine protection, though, is not about preventing you from dying ever. It's about you dying before your time. Well, yes, but I don't have to worry about the heat of the universe, but my descendants will. Should I not care about my descendants, Rabbi? You're talking about the exter- we're talking about the extermination of the hu- of humanity here. Right. You've stipulated us a God who is going to allow the destruction of all life. No, no, I'm stipulating a God that cannot prevent the destruction of all life. So, especially if you do stupid stuff that destroys our planet. It's not a matter of allowing it, right? I, I mean, like, if... if uh, I don't know, I mean... If we've set the mechanism in motion... If, if, if the U.S. declared war on Iran tomorrow, maybe I couldn't have stopped it. But they... But... But... I'm still allowing it. So I'm still allowing it at some level. God can't manage no, you, I mean, about the global warming. No, we can't. Well, maybe you we have. Can't, but but the, you have. What I would say. So what I would say is that there's a difference between allowing something which is active um, and bearing some degree of responsibility for it, which is some which is. So there's no question that God is somewhat responsible for it if He created the universe. Correct. Right. So that that's so are true. Are you saying that God dropped the bomb on Hiroshima? Oh, no, no, he has some responsibility for it. Yes. Okay. Right. What responsibility? He created a universe. I'm afraid this where, where, where it could happen. Where it could happen with humans who have the capacity, capacity to do this awful to, thing. Right. 
Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that then. What, so what, what I would say, what I would say is that, um, uh, uh, God can, God can't, God can only prevent what God can prevent. Right. That's um, not really the case. And I actually, and, and, and I, and I posit, I posit a, uh, a view of God that is, uh, fairly limited in terms of yes. what God can do. Um, including not only the, the, the sort of classical, you know, human free will, right. But also God's mastery or control over nature. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that God has, con- you know, so I don't think God can stop an asteroid from, or a meteor from hitting the earth. Um, uh, even if God wanted to, but what I, but what I do think is that, I mean, that, that's what, you know, Maimonides has, I think the one of the most sophisticated understandings, even for a fairly traditional dominant theology, theological model of, you know, why suffering happens in the world. Um, most of suffering Maimonides says is either a function of materiality or human freedom. Right. And, and, and Maimonides, even though he has a pretty, you know, uh, significant notion of God's power, um, uh, 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 says that at the very least, God is non-interventionist when it comes to materiality and human freedom, right? So, um, so you know, so yeah, so like, could in my view, could God theoretically stop an ast- a meteor from hitting the the Earth and wiping out humanity? Yes, God theoretically could. Will God? No, right. Well, um, so I, 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 I actually I, would say that, like before, you said about Rambam. I'm not sure I'd agree with you that Maimonides would. I think Maimonides would say that he that God will not intervene. If we're talking about materiality and human and, and human decision making, God will not intervene in a genocidal in a, in a xenocidal nuclear war. Right. But will God potentially intervene? With respect to an asteroid, I would view an asteroid as being equivalent to the Great Flood in Rambam's Which got view, enacted. Which got enacted, and therefore, if we are righteous, God will not exterminate us again. Under Rambam's view. Yeah. So then you, when you're asking for this kind of protection, you're asking for protection from natural disasters with the idea that you can't prevent human will. Yes, uh, that would be that would be my interpretation. Sure. So what I, so what I would say is that uh, I, guess I, I guess I guess I guess I'm focused more on what seems to be within the realm of human control. Yes. Yeah. But the asteroid example is not right. such an example. Right. right. Therefore, true. <laughs> um, right. So what good is material prosperity if an asteroid comes in and wipes <laughs> out humanity? I, I get it. Um, uh, Anyway, so okay, so we have all right. So the so this this next piece of the priestly blessing, the call for God to shine God's face on us, right? the call for God's uh, 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 being pleased with us, is a challenge to make God more present in our lives and in the world. It's about discerning God's lure, making those choices that will enable us to thrive, but also those that prevent us from becoming hard-hearted and that enable us to support the thriving of others. It's about habituating ourselves to make the choices to follow the lure and thereby making godly action instinctive and reflexive in our lives. Okay. So we have Yevrecha Adonai Vishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai Paravelecha, may God shine God's face on you, Vichunecha, uh, uh, um, which uh, uh, is usually translated as and be gracious to you. How does uh, 
Um, yep, yeah, be gracious to you, right? Um, so I actually uh, uh, interpret this or translate it um, uh, in line with some of the other commentators that don't translate chayin uh, as graciousness, but translate it as uh, as um, uh, like chone, which means like to camp by you, uh, like machane. Right, it is to camp. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Rabbi Chia the Great uses a bit of uh, creative philology to connect the word vichuneka, uh, which is from the root chet nun nun, uh, to uh, a related but distinct root, which is chet nun hey, which means to camp or to dwell. And so, if that were the case, then the passage would mean uh, may God uh, may God be pleased with you and dwell close to you. Hmm. Remember that, according to Deuteronomy chapter 31, God's pleasure in us leads to God's palpable presence in the world. So we interpret that concept to mean uh, that fulfilling our covenantal responsibilities, advancing goodness, justice, and peace, enhances the godliness manifest in our world. God, who is the ultimate expression of the oneness of all creation, dwells with us. Only if we let God in. It's a notion that evokes Exodus, which says, right. I, I will dwell among you when you make a holy space for me. In other words, the priestly blessing assures the recipient that if one pursues the program outlined in the first three stages of the blessing, uh, material prosperity, uh, uh, protection from prosperity, um, uh, following the covenant, uh, then uh, will create a more just and peaceful world, and that would be a world in which godliness is more present. But living in that kind of world is of little value if it's unsustainable. Or if meteorite comes. What? Or if, or if a meteorite <laughs> comes, right? Um, right. I mean, because what good is a world like that if a meteorite comes, or if it, or if it only stays like that uh, for a brief period of time before it devolves into lawlessness or injustice or suffering? Um, fortunately, though, human being. This is usually phrases an unfortunate thing, but I think it's actually fortunate. We're creatures of habit. So if we, um, uh, our, our actions crystallize over time into habits, which become instincts, which become almost like innate parts of who we are. So if we accustom ourselves to act in godly ways, that makes it how we're likely to act in the future. Every action we take defines the options we have to act in every consequent situation, right? So, um, so I could theoretically become a ballerina, but all of the choices I've made in my life uh, from birth until now make it extremely unlikely that I will ever be a ballerina, right? Much more likely you'll be a ballerina. <laughs> what? Well, grammatically, ballerina is the feminine. Ballerino. Much, yeah, yes, it's ballerino. much more likely. But all the choices you made up to now really make it unlikely right, you'll be a ballerina. Right? And, and, some, and some that were made for me. Yes, that's true. Well, right. um, not necessarily. Yes, but all the choices you made up until now have right. helped to... Uh, so, but it's also true, right? It's not only our own like personal decisions, it's also the environment that we're in, right? So if we live in an environment where dignity, compassion, justice... Um, and peace are the norm, 
increase the likelihood that we will live our lives in consonance with those values. It's why, you know, when, when it says that Noah was a righteous person in his time, and there's that debate about, you know, does that mean he's really righteous or just like, you know, compared to the people in his time? Um, so, I mean, there's obviously multiple ways you can look at that, but I usually, I usually, I usually view, I usually view Noah really favorably there because how hard is it to be a righteous person, even a, an incrementally more righteous person sure. in a time where everybody around you is a jerk. Right. So they're all acting like animals. Arguably. That, that if, the movie, that he was not, that if no. we look at him without kind of no. adjusting for inflation, he's only righteous in his time. Right. But if we put him in Moshe's time, really he, so he was not as righteous as Moshe or Abraham. But if we put him in Moshe or Abraham's time, he would have been equally or more righteous. Or more, right. right. But he wasn't right. That Noah's like leaving behind because of his environment. So the, the answer is yes. So. Well, that's one of the things that's explicitly prohibited. Yes! Right, right. No yeah. height loss. There we go. And it's easier to televise than a lot of the other things. <laughs> so, anyway, so, the, so the blessing of God's closeness um, is also the blessing of godliness becoming a natural part of us through our regularly performing acts of godliness. So at first blush, I think that might appear to be a radical departure from the plain meaning of the priestly blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, But from a certain point, from like the whole idea of grace, right? God will sort of like, like be gracious to you, even if you don't deserve it. But I actually think that that's um, what we're talking about is actually really in line with graciousness. Because Jacob Milgram says that graciousness really means mercy. God will not judge Israel, he says, according to its sins, but will deal kindly with it as God's free gift. And many biblical passages support that interpretation um, about grace meaning compassion. But compassion is directly related to proximity. Right, so evolutionary psychology points that out, um, uh, that the best predictor of a compassionate response is our close relation to a person. We tend to be more kind and more forgiving to close relations than to people who are not close relations of us. Um, and uh, there's a great book called uh, Beyond Revenge, um, putting like forgiveness and uh, and compassion or revenge in the context of evolutionary psychology and, then, and, and talking about how we can understand it that way. So, um, so that if we pray for God's graciousness, it's at its core an expression of hope that God will be close to us. That like a relative, God will see us as a part of God. And that we will see God as part of us. And so we're drawn back to understanding this piece of the priestly blessing as the challenge to make godliness a natural part of us. Which we do in large part by acting in godly ways. So, so far, what the priestly blessing is urging us to is a life of habituating ourselves to acting in godly ways and making increasingly godly choices. Okay? And then the third part of the uh, blessing is, um, Right? That may God lift God's face uh, to you. Um, so let's take that place. So, so we talked about the self-reinforcing cycle of the priestly blessing, that these are sort of interlocking pieces. Um, so it sort of works like this, right? The blessings recipient upholds his or her covenantal responsibilities. The world will be infused with more godliness. A more godly world will invite more godly action, which will lead to God having a more secure presence and so on. Therefore, not surprising that the next piece of the blessing would continue that cycle. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, there's an idiom here. God lifting up God's face is sort of idiomatic in the same way that God shining God's face is, but it means something slightly different. Okay, lifting one's face in biblical Hebrew uh, is an idiom uh, meaning, and this goes to what you were saying before, of giving someone preferential treatment. Okay, so uh, so there's a few places in the Bible where this is used um, when um, when Lot. Um, uh, asks to flee the destruction of Sodom. Uh, God's angel replies, very well, I will also lift up my face to you. Right? Presumably because Lotzik welcomed the angels in with a lot of hospitality. Uh, um, Jacob says something similar to Esau. If he like showers Esau with, with gifts, right? then uh, Esau will lift his face to Jacob. Um, there is notably one character in the Bible that is known specifically to not lift up his or her face. Any guesses about who that character is? Tafara? Mm-hmm. He did add on the her, so I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be a woman. Because I was trying to think, who, who would it have been a good trait to not lift up their face? Hannah? Rachel. Who's Just warmest? <laughs> None of you. God. God. God is the character in the Bible who is specifically mentioned as not lifting up his or her face. Where is right? In De- Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse uh, uh, 17, God does not lift up God's face. Right? In other words, it means God shows no favor and takes no bribe, but does justice for the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing them with food and clothing. You too must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So the It assumes a righteous stranger and widow, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it assumes at, at least that these are people deserving of special protection. Um, that God is predisposed to caring about those people. So how do we reconcile these these two things that we explicitly say God does not lift up his face? And we're asking people. God to lift and up God's face. And we're told that God will. Right. So, all right, so uh, I, I, that's what I said. Right? It seems to directly contradict the priestly blessing, right? That uh, um, if it's understood, if I think it's understood through the lens of the dominant theology, if God doesn't show favor... If God's blessings cannot be bought, then what good would it do to pray for God's favor? Right? That's why. I, that's what. That's one of the reasons that I'm drawn to non-traditional theologies because some of these things don't make sense uh, on their face if you uh, if if you take what we know about God through the Bible paired up with what dominant theology, which is really Greek theology overlaid on the Torah, tells us to think about God. Um, yeah. Cervantes said it through Don Quixote. Reach for the unreachable star. Okay. You might not be able to get there. You should still reach for it. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, but but what do we usually say about Don Quixote? He's crazy. Right. He was a, he was he was a, a, a kook who did ridiculous things. Right. Like chase uh, one mouse. So you don't think that you should reach for a goal that you might know you can't reach? That is inherently unreachable. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I think it depends on what the goal is. I mean, you know, you could always say that, like, you know, bring shoot for the moon, you'll bring. you'll at least land among the stars. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that is sometimes wise counsel, right? Um, bring peace to the earth. Um. Do everything he can. So I'm not sure if that is an inherently unreachable goal. I, I'm not positive about that. But like, would I say like, okay, you know, um, uh, try to move this unmovable boulder. What a ridiculous waste of time that would be. Like, why do that? To build up your muscles. As Jerry Seinfeld would say, what for? And all, well, <laughs> to move something else later. How much more productive like, would it be for like, you to carry grain to the poor? Well, we have, also build your muscles. We have all those classic examples of like kung fu movies where like the master gives the gives the task, and the point is to practice the task, even though you're not going to be able to succeed. And then when you go to like the other stuff, like catching the fly, exactly. Although just sometimes can't yeah, do that. Yeah. Um, but even beyond that, um, or the purpose of telling someone to try to move this unmovable rock is to teach them failure. Because failure is a valuable lesson. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> but we've digressed a little bit. Right. Well, anyway, okay. But if, if God doesn't show any favor, then what good would it do to pray for God to show us favor? That's the basic question here. Um, I think it aligns us to do the kind of things that God would find favorable. Right? It sort of puts you in the mindset to think about, like, okay, what would God want me to act like? So, uh, there's an additional question, I think, right? Uh, even if one were to argue that the favor that the priestly blessing asks is simply for God to be swayed by and to reward our good behavior, we would still face the theological problem that God frequently doesn't seem to reward good behavior or punish bad behavior, mm. right? That righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper. Uh, and there's a third question, a third problem here, which is, um, there seems to be a contradiction embedded in the very passage, right? How can God do show no favor and simultaneously do justice for and befriend the disadvantaged, right? It says in the same breath in the Torah, right? God shows no favor and favors the poor, right? How can God do both of those things? Um, well, one is in his capacity as a judge, and the other is in his capacity as an advocate. Because God, he's all like those both mean, things at the it, same it, time, right? Like, like, I mean, if, if we look at if we look at I mean, judges in our community, we would we would want them to expect them to show no favor to the poor when they're sitting on the bench, and then take their salary and go donate aid to worthy causes to help the poor. Okay, that is them showing no favor, not lifting up their faces, and showing favor to the poor. Okay. I like that. I mean, the, yeah. Um, right, one's, you know, like, in, in, in official capacity. One's, but, for God, but the problem is that, that God, like, both are official capacity. Yes, but <laughs> but but God, but I think that there's a, there's a, there's a case to be made that God as a, as a, God as a shepherd is a different official capacity than God as a dayah. God is a judge. Okay. God, if God, God may be doing seventy different jobs simultaneously, then some of them God should be showing no favor, and in others He should be showing favor. Well, I, maybe you—not even on that higher kind of level—but God doesn't show favor to you because you're this or that or who. You know, it's not about who you are, who your dad was. It's about <laughs> your inherent qualities as a 
person. Well, I think that's hard to reconcile with. Well, but I, you know, I don't think that. I mean, it goes back to my question of like, does God take care of the righteous, the, the children the of the righteous Lord. stranger, or can someone be like wicked as hell and still be cared for in that way? And like the way that I see God behaving in the Torah, I don't think that that's true. I think that it's inherently like, you know, there are worthy people among you who are not like you. And you have to get past the fact they don't look like you. They don't act like you. They don't go to the same places that you go. They don't hang out with the same people that they don't look like you. So I don't want anything to do with them. Right. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I followed what you were saying. Uh, when you say worthy people, are you talking about the Gerter the, the the, Shav, the, the, the strangers among us, or are you talking about worthy people with it? Both. Well, Inherently but, but, both. But, there's, but you are supposed, but I would say that, that, I mean, in many of our sections, we're told that we should treat them, that we are supposed to treat them differently. But we're, in some cases, we're supposed to treat them the same, and in other cases, we're supposed to treat them differently. For example, when it comes to the Pesach sacrifice, we're specifically told if they're not circumcised, they can't eat the sacrifice. Doesn't matter how righteous they are, they're not circumcised, they can't eat the sacrifice. Like, so there's, there's a, there's a, I mean, that's true, generally, that there's this tension, like, we're supposed to treat the stranger fairly and equitably, right. but they are still a second-class citizen. It's like the, it's like, I mean, it's in, in certain ways. Well, then you run into the separate but equal. No, no, it's not separate but equal. It's explicitly separate but unequal. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's, it's we were equal. talking about the Pesach Although, you know, it's, but it's complicated because there's also plenty of places where it says you shall have one law, right? Yes. Yeah. But one law, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is complicated. One law for you, one law for you. No, 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 one law, <laughs> one law for, one law for you and the stranger. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying, yeah. Um. I mean, it, I don't know whether it was with you guys or someone else that was discussing the fact that I don't have a problem with the fact that, like, I mean, if we look at Islamic law about the Quran, the, the differential treatment between the dhimmi and the... Right. Like, I don't think there's intrinsically a problem with saying that there are... that there are... There are that you can have a, a, a differential citizenship system that is... that distinguishes between the... the that still treats fairly and by codifying, it is a clear system that is not overly punitive, is not destructive of the different, while still having a difference between those who are fully a member of the community and those who are not. It's really dangerous territory. It is. It's a very dangerous space to work in, but that doesn't mean it's... I mean, and this is where, at the risk of being political, I think that the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown v. Board was an overstepping of judicial authority. It needed to of, be done. Of what? Judicial authority. That the no, Supreme what? what in, in Brown v. Board. The structure of... It was... I think that it was... That the, present, the data that was presented to them did not demonstrate that separate but equal is inherently unequal. They demonstrate that in this case it was, but sep- but striking it down in whole was an overstepping of judicial authority. It was the right thing to be done, but it was the right thing, but it was not something that For was... For the wrong reasons. Okay. Well, no, no, it was the, they had all the right reasons, but they were not the right people to do it. Hmm. The right people to do it was Congress. They did not, that they overstepped, that they misinterpreted 
what that it would the the data in front of them, and because Title Nine, I mean, to come to a different topic, the question of can you have separate bathrooms at all for separate sexes? We've said we can't. This is a quintessential example of separate but equal. Right. So therefore, as a matter of principle, as fundamental truth, the judiciary was wrong in saying that the 14th Amendment, in my opinion, prohibits separate schooling. I'm not sure how we got here. Mm. Uh, we were talking about um, we were t we were talking Doesn't about the law. For the the law she was preference. talking about the Gerto Shav, and uh, that brought us to separate laws. The right thing to do morally, it just wasn't the right thing to do legally. I mean, ultimately, I think that my my view on this uh, comes down uh, similar to something Bree said before, right? So you know, I think that when we ask in the priestly blessing for God's blessings to come to us, we're not asking for gold stars or for cash rewards. We're not asking for health, long life, and prosperity to be gifted to us from heaven, um, even though we say that those are worthy things for us to pursue ourselves. Rather, we're praying that our godly work yields godly results, that we succeed in fashioning lives and building a world in which godliness is manifest. And so what we mean by asking that God show us favor is that our work on God's behalf be effective <laughs> in bringing God closer to our world. Right? And so it's not a matter of God accepting or rejecting that kind of favoritism. Right? God does, we see in the Torah, favor the weak and the marginalized. And so if we, like God, uh, fight for justice and human dignity, we fight on behalf of the weak and the marginalized, we will as a result receive God's favor in the sense that there will be more godliness present in our world. Right? God's on their side. If we fight on their side, then we bring God into the world. Um, when we defend the cause of the downtrodden, God's presence is made more manifest. When we do not, God's presence flees. There's no middle ground. The cycle then of the blessing continues, right? We pray that we engage in more godly behavior, which will lead to God being more present in the world, which will in turn urge more godly behavior. And then the blessing concludes with uh, uh, that God should place upon you peace or grant you peace. Um, and I think that in, insofar as the blessing is kind of, not only can it be seen sort of like as a ladder that, or a stairway that, that builds up, it also can possibly be sort of like a cycle or a spiral so that the blessing in, in a sense can be seen as ending with peace, but also possibly as beginning with peace too. Um, so, um, so peace in the Jewish tradition means two distinct things. Um, uh, though they're in some ways connected. The first is an absence of violence, uh, and the second means wholeness, completion, or fulfillment, right from the root shalem, shlemut. Um, the goal of following God's lure, um, of striving to live lives of justice and righteousness, of mending fra fractured lives in a fractured world, um, of making the world a more suitable dwelling for the divine is shalom. Right? Completed, harmonized, and perfected lives. Completed, harmonized, and perfected world. Ultimately, the priestly blessing 
uh, challenges us to fashion lives, communities, and a world of shalom. Um, so peace is the goal, but it also can some ways be seen as the prerequisite. It's hard to flourish without first enjoying peace, right? Imagine this is a similar thing that I said about like having any other blessings without first having some degree of like prosperity. Like if you, you know, the hierarchy of needs, right? If you can't, if you, if you're hungry, it's hard to like be concerned about social justice, right? Um, but it's similarly, like, like if, if, if you don't live in a, it's like really hard to be prosperous if you don't live in like a peaceful society, right? Um, so, unless uh, you're an arms dealer. Unless you're an arms dealer, that is true. But you're still more likely to be prosperous if you're an arms dealer in a prosperous, in a peaceful society who's selling to non-peaceful societies. Right. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and, and so that's sort of external, right? But also internal, right? You're more likely to like, be prosperous and flourish as a person if you have internal shalom, right? If you have a sense of harmony and contentment in your life, right? And that's twofold. First is... Um, you know, in terms of like material blessings and material prosperity, if you're like a stable, secure person, you're more likely to be successful. But there's also, I think, another sort of like spiritual sense of it. If you have a sense of like contentment and gratitude and fulfillment in your own life, it doesn't matter how much material wealth you have, right? It's sort of what what um, is said in the Mishnah or Ezehu Ashir Hasamech Pechalko. Okay, who's a wealthy person, a person who is happy or content with his or her portion, right? Um, um, uh, so, uh, um, uh, the priestly blessing teaches us that the only way to truly fulfill its godly challenges is first to cultivate peace in our lives and peace in our world. That means that we must work to make our societies more just and to bring an end to the violence that plagues our communities and the planet. And it also means uh, that we are invited to be personally balanced, contented, and grateful, to make ourselves spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally whole. Ironically, the result of this inner and outer work will be a peace that would negate our need for doing all the other work that priestly blessing invites us to do. So the power of the blessing, I think, and why it has the structure it has, is it has a kind of built-in obsolescence. Um, blessed lives in a blessed world are not a result of divine grace, but rather the product of human action, of the extent to which we acknowledge and follow God's lore. Only we, following God's invitation, can make peace in our lives and peace in our world. God cannot do it for us. God needs our partnership. Ultimately, the understanding... Uh, so, ultimately, this understanding of the priestly blessing makes sense of the context in which the Torah places it. Remember that this is something the priests are supposed to say um, on to the Jewish people, right? Linking God name, God's name to the Jewish people. Um, it's the blessing the priests give because, according to our tradition, the priests embody shalom. Right? The sage Hillel in the Mishnah famously says that we should be mitamidav shalarona kohen, ohev shalom, verodef shalom, ohevetabriot mekorvan the Torah. That we should be among the disciples of Aaron the priest. Uh, who was a lover of peace and a pursuer of peace, a lover of people, and someone who brought them closer to Torah. So the blessing is an imperative for its recipients to themselves become lovers of peace and pursuers of peace as the people giving the blessing are. 
And the way to do that, according to the Jewish tradition, is to study, practice, and live a life of Torah. Uh, Rabbi Elazar said, uh, in the name of Rabbi Chinia, Talmidei Chachamim Marivim Shalom Ba'olam, that students of the sages increase peace in the world. The priestly blessing, then, is not a wish list of the things we hope for God to give, but rather an invitation to engage in a program of following God's lure, of working toward a better, more just, and more peaceful world through Torah. So the whole blessing, in some ways, can be encapsulated by the by the view that the that the way to uh, um, uh, to link God's name with the Jewish people and bring godliness in the world and live the kind of lives and have the kind of blessings that the that the priestly blessing invites us to is to live a life of Torah, to live a life of studying Torah and living Torah. The priestly blessing embodies a challenge to discern God's will and make godly choices offering a process for building to better lives and a better world. When we hear this blessing recited over us, the objective is for it to move us to live lives of Torah, lives of peace and peacemaking, lives dedicated to bringing God into the world. And this is something that that I uh, often think of and have in mind because I recite this for our B'nai Mitzvah children and for our kids on Friday night. When we recite it over our children, um, I have in mind the, the, the notion um, uh, that uh, there's this Midrash that says, um, right? uh, Don't read this as uh, um, that, your, um, that uh, all of your children will be builders of peace. Um, you should, or uh, uh, that all your children um, will be will be peaceful. Rather, you should read it as builders, right? Um, uh, that uh, that that students of the sages um, uh, will be builders of a repaired world, a more peaceful world. And that ultimately, I think, what the priestly bl- is what the priestly blessing is inviting us toward. Right? It's not um, uh, the priest sort of like saying, like, I wish God uh, supernaturally swoops down and gives you all sorts of awesome stuff. Right? That'd it's, be pretty cool too. Which would be awesome. Um, uh, but rather, it's it's uh, trying to communicate to the recipients um, that you have the possibility, you have the capacity of bringing uh, godly blessings into your own lives and into the world if you live and engage in the world in a particular way. I think that particular way is primarily through the prism of Torah and covenant. Questions? Comments? Objections? Reactions? I'm too tired to ask a question. It's not at this time of night. This, I think, the proper answer. I think it's kind of cool that it's an invitation rather than a passive like, be healed right, <laughs> sort of thing. Right. <laughs> Stamp, you're good, you know, until I give it to you again or whatever. So, I guess I have one question, which is, a lot of blessings, including you know, like we're told we're supposed to do in whatever language we understand. Mm-hmm. This one we're not. Yeah. So, if this is about an exhortation, why, why do we do this explicitly in the this language, in this, with these words, like, why codify it yeah. so strongly? Like, that's my biggest objection to this whole... Yeah, I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer to that. I have to think about that more. I don't have a good answer to that. Um, 
because I'm not sure I'd buy it at all. <laughs> right. Um, I, I'm not positive I have a good answer to that question. Um, first of all, I think that the uh, that that um, understanding of the blessing is. Uh, I mean, there's, there's certainly there's certainly contextual cues, right? Yeah. right? This is how. You, but I'm not sure that the Torah meant that quite so literally. I'm like, obviously, that's how they would bless them because that's the language that they spoke. And I mean, how else are they going to bless them? Uh, I'm not sure that it meant that it couldn't be intoned in any other blessing, uh, in any other language. I mean, um, I think that you know that's sort of like a rabbinic read of this because. The, the rabbis, I think, to a certain degree, like saw this as magical, right? Uh, which is why it was on amulets and things after all, right? Um, there was sort of like a, a view of this that, like, this is sort of like a, a, ma- a magic formula. Um, I'm not positive that they were right about that. I mean, like, it could be like that's the way they applied the law, but it may not be the way the law is meant to be applied. Um, but, I did, but, 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 it's, but it's possible. But it's possible with a little bit of time and creativity, come up with a more creative answer than that.